Welcome to day 41 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're looking at Exodus chapters 9 and 10, and then Psalm chapter 20, and then we'll be in Matthew, we're in Matthew, are we? Chapter 26, verses 69 through chapter 27, verse 10. Uh, so we're in the middle of the plagues on Egypt right now, and um, we see a bunch of uh, familiar um, things uh, that we looked at yesterday, uh, things that that different plagues have in common with one another that are important to note. Uh, I'd note once again the announcement in advance of several of the plagues, uh, livestock, hail, locusts. Um, they, these all have announcements in advance that, the, that God is going to do just this. And then Pharaoh's like, all right, go, let him do it. Um, so I think that's a very important thing. Also note the, uh, setting apart of Israel as protected or, uh, sheltered from the plagues. We see this in livestock. Israel's livestock does not, is not harmed. Uh, we certainly see this during the, during the plague of hail as well where Goshen is set apart and not uh, subject to the plague of hail. Um, okay, as we walk through them, we see uh, this variation that we noted yesterday as well, that uh, occasion, that at, sometimes it says that Pharaoh, his heart was hardened, just doesn't really indicate who did it. Sometimes it says that he hardened his own heart, and sometimes it says that the Lord hardened his heart. And, um, again, the, the reason being, um, the, the reason why God sets out to do this is not strictly in response to Pharaoh's already having hardened his heart, as sometimes it is asserted, um, th th this, this concept of uh, judicial hardening, which is a biblical concept. You see this certainly in passages like Romans 1 would be a very good example of this, where part of God's judgment is allowing us to wallow further into our sin. Like saying, okay, do you want, you, you really want this? Sure, you can have it, uh, along with all the consequences, and, um, and that the indulgence in sin in itself is part of God's judgment. And that certainly is a biblical concept. I just don't know if it jives so well with explaining exactly what's going on here, because Two times before Pharaoh's heart is hardened, God says to Moses, I will harden his heart. I will harden his heart. Uh, chapter 4, verse 21, and chapter 7, verse 3. So this is something that God does, and he does it for a specific purpose. Um, in chapter 7, verse 3, when he says that, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Uh, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against the Egyptians and bring the people of Israel from among them. And so it is this demonstration of God's power that is a main aspect of what is going on in the Exodus. And in today's passage, we see a bunch of those um we see a bunch of those purpose statements. Um, so, for example, in chapter 9, verse 14, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, 
and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Okay? And then, in the next two verses, we have it again. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. So, in other words, we this could all be over by now. Uh, but for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Like, think about the difference there, right? Like, if God had just just brought his people out of Egypt, quiet, no fanfare, um, you would have had a bunch of escaped slaves, but basically would have just been like, you know, just just this nice, peaceful, uh, this is nice, peaceful scenario. But that he did it this way demonstrates to all the peoples on earth that there is a God in Israel who is more powerful than the gods of Egypt, who is able to do these things, and who, so that then when the, the servants of this God turn and say, say, come to the Lord and be saved, all the ends of the earth, uh, people will know who they're dealing with, not these petty made-up gods that man worships the work of their hands. No, this is a true God who is in Israel, and that's what he wants to get out there, and that's why the plagues are actually important to that. Um, and it's all over the place. Again, chapter 9 in verse 29, um, Moses says to Pharaoh, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will no, be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. Uh, and then uh, again, we see one of these big um, purpose statements, this time for for Moses in chapter 10, verse 2. Uh, because Moses is witnessing all this, the Israelites are witnessing all this, and God tells him, I've hardened the heart of Pharaoh and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what sign I have signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. Uh, so it's very, very clear why God is doing this, and part of this involves the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Again, I don't think that it's this huge justice I, uh, th- problem that uh, it's sometimes made out to be. I leave it to God, right, that that those sins that Pharaoh is, is culpable for, um, he will be judged for. Uh, and those, those that, um, that are less under his control... God knows exactly what the righteous judgment is against those things. But it isn't as if Pharaoh is otherwise totally innocent, just minding his own business, a good guy, totally pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, and God just chooses to pick on him. Um, I just want, I think we need to, 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 to distance ourselves from that kind of thinking because it, it, it's all wrong. Um, okay. A couple other things that are interesting from today's reading in Exodus. Um, note the complicity in verses 30 and 34 of chapter 9 of the servants of Pharaoh as well in what's going on. As for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear. And then if you jump forward 
to verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again, yet again, okay, so this is culpable sin, right, and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. But note here, the servants as well are hardening his, their hearts. It is not just Pharaoh in control. Pharaoh is focused on, just like very often in Scripture, it is the kings who are focused on. Um, but remember, there is a there is another nation of people who do not know the Lord and, and, and deny the Lord, um, whom God is also dealing with here. Another interesting thing today um, in the reading is uh, happens during the plague of locusts, and this is the this is what happens when God takes care of the of them because they overrun the land. And Pharaoh's servants come before him and they're like, "Come on, let them go," and uh, and and Pharaoh's like, "Okay, yeah, but which ones do I let go again?" Re- realize all this like playing dumb that Pharaoh does. Uh, what did you want to do again? What did you? He's just he wants to give as little as possible to be able to, um, to to be able to maintain order, um, and so Pharaoh's like, yeah, which ones? And and Moses Moses in verses nine and eleven of chapter ten is like, yeah, no, everyone everyone needs to go. And then Pharaoh has this weird way of saying it. Um, I've always thought this is interesting. Verse ten, he says. Yahweh be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Uh, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. And Pharaoh says, okay, only the men can go. Now get out of my sight. Which is interesting because all that happens before the locusts even come. It's during the warning. The servants are are freaking out that the land is going to be decimated. And of course, when they do come, uh, they they uh, Moses has to pray again to the Lord for them to be taken. And the way that the Lord takes care of the locusts is uh, interesting because one of the questions in the study of this stuff is where exactly the Sea of Reeds was. And recall that the Red Sea that the Israelites will be crossing in a few chapters, uh, that that is a mistranslation of the Hebrew Yam Suf, uh, suf is uh, the yam is the word for sea. The suf is the word for reed, and that's actually a loan word from Egyptian. In Egyptian, the word for reed is tufi, and that becomes suf in Hebrew. So it's definitely not the the Red Sea. It is the Sea of Reeds, but we're not so not sh- exactly sure where it was. And there's all these different candidates. We'll talk a little bit more about that as the pa- relevant passages come up. But here, I think, is a very interesting clue that is sometimes overlooked, and that is, if you look uh, in verse 19, when God sends a wind to um, take care of the locusts, it's a strong west wind, and it so it comes from the west, and it lifts the locusts and drives them into none other but Yam Suf. So wherever we're placing the, the Sea of Reeds, it's got to be a place that is apparently due east of where the Israelites are living up in the up in the Nile Delta. So it's going to be kind of towards in the north of Sinai, if you look at a map up north in Egypt, actually the section that's called Lower Egypt by the Egyptians, the Nile branches into all these uh, different different things, and that's that's the Nile Delta. It, um, 
it, the, the Nile almost looks like a martini glass, I think, sometimes, where you have this upside-down triangle and then this long stem. And uh, they're up there in the north um, where the uh, martini sits and the and the west wing comes and west wind west wing that no that's a show the west wind comes and it blows the locusts due west okay um then finally the last plague we see is the ninth plague the plague of darkness which comes without a warning there is darkness for 3 days over the land and again, separation here. Israel had light during this time. That must have been this extremely obvious plague, and and Pharaoh is just being recalcitrant. Of course, the Lord is hardening his heart during parts of this, but it's not as if that it's not as if Pharaoh is otherwise willing to let the people go. There's a mixture of sin and God's hardening uh, going on here, um, and Pharaoh uh, Pharaoh. Um, tells Moses, go you and your little ones, uh, but leave your flocks and your herds here, right? He wants to make sure that they have incentive to come back. And Moses tells him, well, we need sacrifices and we're not sure what we're going to need if we get, if, uh, so there's not, we, there can't be a hoof left behind. Um, And, and Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh's basically like, "Uh, you're never going to see my face again. And Moses was like, okay, as you say, and this uh, tees up for the final plague, which we'll see tomorrow. Okay, let's say a few words about Psalm 20. Psalm 20, once again, a psalm of David. This psalm is basically a psalm of confidence in God to help. Um, May Yahweh help you, uh, verses 1 through 3. May he answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Notice that the name of the God of Jacob um, in light of some of the stuff we're looking at in Exodus, it's very interesting, right? That what is your name? My name is Yahweh. Um, I will be with you. Um, The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. They will know that my name is Yahweh. Okay, and here the the name of Yahweh protects him. And this doesn't mean that the name of God is magical, like if you just say it, good things are going to happen. No, the the name is is the is is a manifestation of his of who he is, his character, and his power. Um, uh, may Yahweh grant your heart its desires. Verses four through five. Of course, these are godly desires. <laughs> we should take note of that. Um, and there's a shout for joy over God's salvation. I think verses 5 through 9 are very interesting in that, in the phrase, I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. That is the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach. Um, and, and of course, Mashiach is a kingly title. We've talked about this before, um, that the, the kings of Jerusalem are anointed by oil, and so they become known as as uh, as as God's anointed, and that's when Jesus comes around, right? He fulfills the role of this great king to be to come from the line of David, this great future king who will reign forever over God's people. So he's the Mashiach par excellence. He is the um, the ultimate Messiah um, to whom all others pointed and are and are shadows. You know, so you have that kind of thing, this prophetic patterning. Um, and it's interesting here, right, that that one of the things that, that David says is, I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. 
And to my knowledge, I don't think that this psalm is quoted in the New Testament or used in this way, but it does seem very similar to some of the stuff that Peter says in his sermon on Pentecost, um, which is a very interesting take on uh, kind of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Um, So Peter cites a bunch of stuff that really is, it doesn't seem like predictive prophecy in the Old Testament, right? Like David says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter makes this point where, well, David, his tomb, we all know where that is. Um, So um, that was sort of true for him during his life. Uh, But um, Jesus is the ultimate son of David and his tomb is empty. So So whom is this, this psalm truest of? Okay, it's this interesting logic. It's not meant to be this kind of like proof text, like you have no other reason for believing in the resurrection. So let me show you this psalm. Um, it's it's, but it's this idea that um, the character of the Lord's anointed is is built up in the Old Testament, and there's all these passages that contributed to it. And one of the things is is that the 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 Christ, the Mashiach, suffers, suffers at the hands of his enemy. Um, just read Psalm 22. We'll be there in a few days, right? Um, it, it is not just all peaches and cream to be the Lord's Messiah. It's not about just being served. It's a, a lot of it is about suffering. Look at what David had to do. And so you have these statements in the New Testament about like how the apostles were trying to prove that the Christ must suffer and things like that. Well, here the idea, part of this is, yes, the the Christ suffers, but the Lord also saves him. The Lord saves his anointed. And um, this being part of this complex theology of what what it means uh, to be the Lord's Christ, that the Lord saves him. Um, So, uh, very interesting psalm. Um, and the, again, not not directly applicable towards Christ, but I, I think it's I think it's also um, uh, it, it it is relevant to what we make of Jesus as a Psalm of David, um, and uh, yeah, uh, it ends with this very famous um, statement: "Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God." Um, what is your horse and your chariot that you're tempted to trust in besides God? Okay, so, um, Matthew 26. Okay, we're going to be looking at verses 69 in that chapter to chapter 27, verse 10. So here, uh, Jesus has been tried in front of the Jewish authorities. They figured out what they're going to say to Pilate, what they were going to accuse him of. And uh, all the while, Peter has been following from a distance. Remember, we had a little bit of foreshadowing of that back in uh, verse 58. And now here is Peter, um, and he's, he's in the courtyard, and a servant girl comes to him and says, you were, you were with him, weren't you? And he denies it. He says, I don't know what you mean. And, um, and then another servant girl comes up to him, and she says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denies it. And then a, a final a bystander comes and uh, says, you know, certainly you're one of them. You've got a Galilean accent. Um, and Peter 
begins to invoke a curse on himself and swears, I do not know the man. It just kind of like freaks out on him. And the rooster then crows and he remembers what Jesus had told him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he realizes that his professions of loyalty and undying love and support for Jesus um, were hollow, as they often are. Um, and uh, I think we can all relate to Peter here. We can all relate to, to uh, times when we would think that we'd be so faithful to God and we, pro- we proclaim our plans to be, but then when push, push comes to, su- to shove, um, we fail him. And, um, but of course, Jesus is not done with Peter, but he does need to take some time to think about, about this, about his own faithfulness. Okay, um, then as we go into chapter 27, we're told first that Jesus is bound and brought to Pilate, but then we have this, this paragraph about Judas, who realize realizes what he's done. He sees that Jesus is condemned, and he changes his mind, and he brings back the 30 pieces of silver to the priests and the elders, and he says, I've I've betrayed, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood, and and they're like, we don't want that money, that's that's blood money, and and so Judas just chucks the silver at them, um, and, and goes off and hangs himself, and, um, the chief priests are like, well, we can't do anything with this money. And so they go and they, they at least, you know, we can't put it into the treasury of the temple. Um, and so they go and they buy a field with it and use it as a burial place for strangers. And um, the field is called Akeldama, uh, the field of blood. And, um, and Matthew notes another point of fulfillment here. He writes in verse 9, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, this is an interesting quotation. Um, It is a bit of a head-scratcher. So, if you were to look at the passage from which that is primarily drawn, it's actually not Jeremiah. It's Zechariah 11.13. But here, Matthew explicitly says that it was a word spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So, what's going on here? Well, I think what we see here is something we see at a few other places in the New Testament where um, the New Testament writer will sometimes make a composite quotation of several different places in the Old Testament, right? Like, let's remember that it's not like there are rules for, like, you you can't combine two pieces of Scripture or things like that. They do that, and they do it, I don't want to say often, but it's not unusual in the New Testament for them to do that. And when they do that, they will quote the more popular um, or I should say the more major of the prophet, perhaps. Uh, we saw see this also in the beginning of Mark, Mark 1, 2 through 3, where um, he claims to be quoting from Isaiah, but the bulk of the quotation is actually from Malachi 3, 1. Um, indeed, throughout Matthew's gospel, the only prophets whom he actually names are Isaiah and Jeremiah, two very major prophets, whereas... Um, all the other uh, quotations, you know, the fulfillment passages, 
that are taken from minor prophets, those are all anonymous. Um, and there are five of them, I believe. Um, so yeah, so the Zechariah passage is the primary one. Um, but yeah, you might recall that Jeremiah's got a bunch of um, passages where um, they, he talks about pottery, about potsherds and things like that. Um, for example, uh, Jeremiah 18, 1 through 11, he goes into the house of the potter. And that's significant because the word for potter there is actually, at least in the Greek translation of Jeremiah, is the same word that Matthew uses here, whereas the one used in Zechariah actually is a different one. Um, so some of the language is taken that from that. Um, then um, and, and all, uh, in chapter 19, the very next chapter in Jerusalem, you've... Um, you have this denouncement of people for of of Jerusalem for shedding innocent blood, and um, and uh, then in, in chapter thirty two you have another prophecy of Jeremiah, where there's uh, this this earthenware vessel, and they buy this plot of land in Jerusalem and put it in the earthenware vessel and uh, bury it in a field, kind of like as a testimony to the the hope the promise of God that one day this land will be valuable again, um, so but the the passage in Zechariah is the one that I want to just talk about for a minute or two here because um, I think it is very interesting. So the larger context of this passage it seems to be Zechariah talking about himself, where God commands him to become earlier in the chapter to become the shepherd of the flock doomed for slaughter. So this is, God is dissatisfied with his people, and uh, he's going to bring judgment among them. And, he, and this whole passage is about how miserable it is to be the shepherd of an obstinate people, and uh, kind of like an indictment against them for that. And so he's got these shepherd staffs, one's called favor and one's called union, and he breaks both of them. And, um, and then and then at the end of the day, he goes to the people who are in charge, who who own the sheep, whom he's been shepherding, um, and he and he says, "If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them." And they weighed out as my wages thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, "Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them." So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So. Notice what's going on here. Um, for going out of his way and enduring the pain-in-the-neck task of uh, shepherding the flock doomed for slaughter, he goes to get paid, and he's paid 30 shekels of silver, which is apparently a, a low amount for the kind of work he did. And that's why he calls it the lowly price at which I was priced by them. And then I took it and I, I threw it uh, into, into the house of the Lord, to the potter, the one, the one who makes pots there. And um, so Matthew was drawing several similarities here, right? Like, what is the what is the value of the shepherd? A measly thirty shekels of silver, and um, the, and this is the sense in which it's like kind of fulfilled because um, to the extent in which Jeremiah or sorry Zechariah actually did this, um, yeah, that's that's it, it's almost a narration, right? It's a historical narration. But um, if you want the ultimate example where this happens, I think Matthew is saying, look to Jesus. Jesus is valued the same amount for his work of shepherding the flock doomed to, doomed to slaughter and uh, wages which get thrown into, um, into the temple 
And then, of course, you also have the connection with the potter. Uh, they, they purchase a field that belongs to the potter. And those are the connections that Matthew draws. All right, well, I think that's about it for today. So uh, thank you again for joining me. I hope you're finding this valuable. And uh, please uh, be back with me tomorrow as we go further through our journey through Scripture. And until then, take care. Bye-bye.